Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, this is Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And we are joined today by a a startling example of what happens uh, with censorship in our academic institutions uh, from someone who teaches teaches the students how to recognize it, how to recognize this manipulation in the media and is actually turned around upon him. So he has an absolutely fascinating story. Uh, Dr. Mark Miller is uh, teaching at the New York University, Chicago native like me, but somehow wound up in New York. And we'll find out the, the intriguing answer as to how he wound up in this tyrannical state. But uh, he's got a fascinating story to share, and I'm just so excited to have him on. So thank you and welcome. Well, thanks for having me. Um, and let me just throw that right back at you. I mean, I, I uh, all honor to you for your uh, intrepid stand, your efforts, your unrelenting efforts to get the uh, word out about uh, the best way to stay healthy mm-hmm. in the face of big pharma and its myrmidons. You know, uh, I think we're we're living similar stories. So it's, it's, it's more than appropriate that I join you here today. And I thank you for the invitation. Well, uh, that, those um, words mean a lot coming from someone like you, who's really an objective barometer of, of truth out there. So thank you for those comments. But why don't you tell us your story? Because it is quite fascinating. And, and you, you know, lead, go back as far as you'd like. But I'm just really curious how someone like you wound up in New York. This is like, that's the last state you want to be. But I, I know there's a reason for it. I'm just wondering why that why that is. Oh, what a sad statement that is. I mean, um, New York is not what it used to be. I can tell you that. And I think most New Yorkers would agree with me. And that's the case with many great cities uh, all across the West. They've been sort of demolished in a sense. It's as if a neutron bomb has fallen on them. And it's all because of this um, uh, COVID crisis and it's highly sophisticated engineering from on high. Uh, I ended up at NYU. I, 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 uh, I guess I've always been a bit of an oddball. Uh, I got a PhD in English uh, in the 70s, uh, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. And I was a student of the Renaissance. Uh, my dissertation was on Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And on my own, I, I took to studying the movies. I taught some undergraduate courses on film. I ran the film series on campus. I started writing articles on film. So by the time I you know, was uh, ready to go to my first job. Um, I, I, I got a, a gig teaching English at the University of Pennsylvania. I was doubly equipped. Uh, that is, I, I, I could teach Shakespeare courses and literature survey courses, which I did. And I could teach film courses, which I also did. So through the rest of the 70s into the early 80s, I, I, I started writing more and more about um, not just the movies, but media. To be very succinct, you know, I had learned uh, as a, as an English major how to read literary texts closely and carefully to you know discover their hidden depths, enrich the experience of reading them, poems, plays, things like that. 
And I, I discovered, you know, to my, to my delight that you could do that with great movies as well. Uh, so that, you know, the more closely you watch them and the more times you watch them, the more you see in them. So this was a, an aesthetic pursuit and, and entirely pleasurable. But I then began to notice the TV commercials were also extremely subtle. I mean, they weren't complex or deep, but as, as propaganda um, uh, messages, they, they were really very carefully done so that they would appeal to you on both a conscious and an unconscious level. So I started writing about those, then about political rhetoric. And Excuse about, me for a moment yeah. to interrupt, because I'm curious about this. Would this include subliminal messaging? Well, yeah, that, that's a complicated issue. Okay, we can, we can delay that for later. Uh, uh, okay, yeah, a kind of subliminal messaging, right? Um, although I think that everything that's in these images is usually uh, accessible to the naked eye if you watch carefully enough. Mm -hmm. And the idea of subliminal messaging is that they flash, uh, you know, cues that you don't pick up consciously. And that may happen. Anyway, I digress. Okay. Um, you know, I started writing more and more about the media. And I was favoring um, magazines with a public readership. Um, I, I have a total of one academic publication in, in, in the whole history of my career. It was in Milton Studies. It was on Paradise Lost. And I'm very proud of it. Uh, but I, I wanted to reach more than just an academic audience from the beginning. And I, I felt, quickly felt the urgency of uh, alerting people to what the media was doing. You know, I loved closely reading, you know, uh, you know a bit of, of uh, news footage or as propaganda or a TV commercial as, as commercial propaganda. But I began to see that it was important to alert people to the, the intensifying concentration of the media from on high, which is a process that had been slowly ongoing throughout the 20, well, since the 30s. And that now, uh, you know, in, by the 90s had become kind of a crisis as a handful of transnational corporations uh, were controlling most of the content that everybody was absorbing, uh, news and entertainment alike, and it was getting worse and worse. So I started to become an activist uh, for media reform and wrote a great deal on this, lectured about it very widely. This is through the 90s, and, and you can see how successful I was. <laughs> you know, uh, telecom bill of 1996, signed by Bill Clinton, uh, set the seal on, a, on, a, on, on the creation of a monolith, a, a media monolith, a trust, you know, a media trust, which had already started uh, in dead earnest under Reagan, now it was really getting serious. Um, so uh, fast forward uh, 2001 uh, after the uh, election of, of Bush Cheney uh, and you know, the war on terror had begun and I shifted my interest from media concentration to the urgent need for voting reform uh, because it was becoming ever clearer that the outcome of our elections does not necessarily reflect the will of the electorate. And this was uh, abundantly clear after the 2004 election, uh, which I believe was stolen. Uh, people will readily agree that the 2000 election was stolen because of the intervention of the Supreme Court. Uh, but you know, uh, the election integrity movement, which was very small, 
uh, and of which I was a part, saw copious evidence of theft in 2004. So that Bush Cheney weren't weren't even, I mean, they weren't elected in the first place, nor were they reelected in the second place. So I wrote a book about this, uh, Fooled Again, the real case for uh, uh, electoral reform. Uh, you can get a copy on Amazon, used copy for $900, okay? <laughs> Uh, that's another problem. Uh, so, you know, let, let me add that I, I, I also noticed that more and more books that I'd been assigning uh, were out of print and unavailable. So I um, uh, edited something called The Forbidden Bookshelf, which people can find. Uh, we, we managed to do 27 titles. These are all books that were variously killed at birth with new introductions, uh, either by the authors or by somebody else. And, and, and there's a very important book on election theft in there called Vote Scam, that I think is kind of a life-changing book. At any rate, as you can see, uh, my interests were becoming um, more and more um, taboo. And when Fooled Again came out, uh, my career underwent a startling change. Now, up to that point, that's 2005, I had written several op-eds for the New York Times. Uh, I had often been on NPR on all of its shows, you know, as, a, as an expert on media. They asked me about pop culture and I talk about Madonna and stuff like that. And um, now to my amazement and to the amazement of my publisher, which is Basic Books, I mean, really solid establishment house, uh, the book was blacked out by the corporate media. And here we expected to kickstart an urgent national debate. Well, what does, that, what does that look like? What does that mean, blacked out? Well, it means that we, I, we couldn't get reviews anywhere. I mean, not only could the, the publicist for the publisher uh, ran into a brick wall, and I even hired my own publicist. This is the woman who is the publicist for Paul Krugman and Bob Herbert. And she came in, you know, uh, full of piss and vinegar, and we're going to, you know, really make this famous. And she'd never, she'd never encountered such resistance. She couldn't get anywhere. Uh, but listen, at the same time, and this is the most interesting thing, while the corporate media blacked the book out so that there were a total of two newspaper reviews in the whole country, and one was a hit piece, <laughs> the left press... <clears throat> attacked me as a conspiracy theorist. And, and this is the left press. I, I wrote for the left press. You know, I wrote for the nation. I wrote for all of them. I knew these people. And this was conspiracy theory. And I was a conspiracy theorist, you know, which has stuck to me ever since. So I was very curious. Once I got over the shock, I, I, I decided to look into this because I, I asked myself, when did this become a thing? You know, when did conspiracy theory come to spring from everybody's lips so that people will say, well, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but, and then they'll say something completely reasonable, you know, I mean, some suspicions are healthy. So what did I do? It was very easy. I went to the archives of the New York Times and the Washington Post and Time magazine I did a search on those phrases, conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist. And I found that until 1967, conspiracy theory was used from time to time uh, in various ways. Conspiracy theorists never, nobody ever used that phrase, but 
1967 on, it starts being used more and more and more. And it turns out that that is because in early 1967, the CIA sent to all its station chiefs worldwide a memo, its memo 1035-960, instructing their station chiefs to use their media assets to attack the works of um, investigators who were questioning the Warren report, okay? So this is people like Mark Lane, uh, Edward J. Epstein. Some of these books like Rush to Judgment by Mark Lane were bestsellers. And these people were getting traction because the Warren report is absurd. You know, the whole official story of Dallas is ludicrous. And um, this was becoming increasingly clear and at the same time, Jim Garrison in New Orleans, the DA, was doing his own high-profile um, prosecution. Uh, the memo doesn't mention him. Anyway, the memo goes out, and it gives these uh, officers, it's what we would call them talking points, to feed to their um, media tools. And some of them we still hear today. One of them is... Um, if there were a conspiracy of this magnitude, somebody would have talked by now. You, you hear that often. And interestingly, you know, now that conspiracy theory is defined as a far right uh, um, uh, problem, right? Back then, according to the memo, uh, conspiracy theory was to be associated with the communists, you see. So it was a left wing threat back then. Now it's a right wing threat. So this took off, right? It, it really took off. Now, were those media assets from the CIA, was that part of Operation Mockingbird? Well, yes, Operation Mockingbird was very important, but um, you have to understand that even informally, the CIA was always involved in, in the media, you know, and not only abroad, but here too. I mean, from the beginning, really. Um, so it wasn't all under the rubric of that particular operation, which everybody's heard of. Uh, second nature for intelligence agencies to do this. It isn't just the CIA. It's also, it was the KGB. You know, it was also the Mossad and, and uh, you know, MI6 and, and all that stuff, MI5. Um, and the FBI here, too, you know, has been heavily involved with the media forever. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover was, I'd say, primarily concerned with his public image. Anyway, I mean, that, this raises a profoundly important issue about democracy in general as to whether it, it's possible when you have the, the media, the press, covertly manipulated by the state. You know, I mean, I think the framers are spinning like tops in their graves, even as we speak. Anyway, uh, I discovered this and um, I, I asked my friend Lance DeHaven Smith, a fellow um, uh, uh, election integrity um, uh, activist who had independently made the same discovery I had to do a book on this. And I, so I recommend uh, strongly to your uh, uh, viewers that they get a hold of Conspiracy Theory in America from the University of Texas Press. I was editing a series for them at the time uh, and it's, I'm pleased to say he wrote it. It's excellent, it's doing very well. And it is part of this hidden history of, the, of America, you know, that, that, that in various ways, the Forbidden Bookshelf series also helps to illuminate. And we all need to understand 
if we want to get a, <clears throat> a clear sense of what's happening now. So uh, how did I end up at NYU? I, I went from Penn back to Johns Hopkins, <clears throat> where I taught for 15 years in the writing department. Uh, so they made a position for me and they called it nonfiction. So I taught students, graduate students, you know, how to write for magazines and stuff. My, my focus was always on the media. And I was, you know, as I say, beginning to become an activist on media reform. So uh, Neil Postman of uh, Blessed Memory was running the department I'm now in at NYU and hired me in part because he wanted another public intellectual on the faculty as he was one and one who was critical of the media. He shared my view that, that, that the whole purpose of media study should be to help inform people generally about the urgent need for a, a properly functioning democratic media system. So I was you know, uh, pursued and welcomed and I was then very glad to, to come up to New York from Baltimore. I mean, New York was still New York City. <laughs> <clears throat> Who would have thought this would happen to it? And um, that's that's where we are today. But since then, since I was hired, you know, Neil passed away. The department I'm in became much, much bigger. And its focus on um, media, per se, kind of dissolved into something more inchoate. It's called the Department of Media, Culture, and Communication. It's very large. It's all over the place. Uh, it's heavily invested in what they call theory, you know, which I think makes it, um, restricts it to an academic uh, uh, readership. And they're very heavily into uh, social justice, as that phrase has now been uh, appropriated to mean something other than what I take to mean social justice. This all has to do with what happened to me here. And I suppose it's one of the reasons you asked me to come on. Yes, I want you to share your story and thank you for framing it with your fascinating history uh, to help us understand how you came to your position because there's not many people like you who, who teach this. And I, I wish I would have had someone like you when I was in college. I had a few uh, professors who really intrigued me where there's just kind of different points and it was totally unrelated to my focus in pre-med studies and I really enjoyed it. And I would, I'm sure I would have been fascinated in your course. So why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, all right. Well, I appreciate that. And let me just, uh, you know, uh, piggyback on your point by saying that I urgently, I mean, I really strongly feel, I used to feel and still do that media, media literacy should be taught in every high school and college. And I, I, I still believe that, but I now realize that a key component of that curriculum has to be propaganda study. Okay, oh. crucial. Crucial. If I were uh, if I were a rich man, I would endow a small college uh, with a special curriculum. You know, arts and sciences. I'm very traditional in that way. Mm -hmm. But but the study of propaganda, uh, and I think Thomas Jefferson uh, and Tom Paine would uh, thank me for this. You know, if they were around, which is unthinkable. All right, what happened? Maybe, maybe the. The University of Virginia would be interested in it. <laughs> I don't know. I, something really terrible has happened to higher education. Yeah. Um, well, we can, we can delve into that later because it's a perfect reflection of what happened to you. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, what happened to me? So I teach a course on propaganda. I've taught it 
for maybe 20 years, uh, at least twice a year, usually to undergraduates now and then also to master's candidates. I've never taught doctoral students. And uh, I make very clear at the beginning of every semester, and this is what I said last September when I, I taught it, um, this is uh, propaganda, I don't believe is an academic subject. I don't teach it as an academic subject. Mm -hmm. um, it's something um, much more uh, urgent than that. And that the study of it uh, can't be uh, as detached uh, as, as your usual academic study uh, because there's a certain urgency to it. And I wanna warn you that it isn't easy. It's extremely interesting and, and indeed fascinating, but it's not easy. And, and, and I, I, I don't mean by that, that it's intellectually hard to grasp. I mean something else. It's not easy because um, while, while it's a simple matter for you or for me to identify propaganda that we don't agree with, okay? Very easy to do that. Uh, it is not easy to recognize propaganda that you agree with, right? Propaganda that pushes your buttons. Uh, while, you know, you on the left will point to Fox News and say that's propaganda, right? Or you on the right, I, I can't remember having any students on the right at NYU. <laughs> uh, you know, they were probably afraid to say anything, although I would have encouraged them to speak up and protected them from, from assault. Uh, you know, you on the right will point to the New York Times and say that's propaganda. And both, both sides are right. You know, Fox News and the Times are indeed propaganda mills. But, but that kind of perception, you know, it's a one-eyed thing because you can't see the propaganda that gets to you. And that's the most effective propaganda because it works best when you don't see it for what it is. You think it's news. You think it's entertainment. You know, you think it's information, right? You think it's expertise, right? So um, you will agree with it that some other terrible uh, thing out there is spewing disinformation, but that you're getting the real thing, all right? So it's hard to study propaganda because you must you know, make an effort to try to pull back and be as impartial as possible, read comprehensively, do all the research you can on all sides of that issue, see what it is the propaganda has blacked out, right? See what it is the propaganda has stigmatized as, as fake, as hoax, as junk science, and look at it objectively. And what's hard is that you will find you have to, sometimes you have to move out of your comfort zone. Sometimes you discover that a thing you believed for years and, and fervently is false or half true. I've had this experience myself many, many times. I don't pretend to be above this. I'm speaking out of, of experience of my own and, I, and I, I continue to have it. You know, I continue to discover the things I, you know, waved off as ludicrous turned out to be true. Well, you have to do that too. Uh, if your mind is awake and your eyes are open, so it's hard and it can be hard socially for you because often you will find the deeper you dig into some narrative, uh, you know, the more surprised you are uh, 
the more you'll feel inclined to mention it to friends, to family, to roommates. And often you'll get pushback. You know, often they'll snort and say, what, you know, what did that crazy professor teach you, right? <laughs> Speaking of which, the last thing I say, and I can't stress this strongly enough, I say to them, this semester, I will refer to evidence of counter narratives that may shock you, right? And you may feel angry, right? The most important thing about what I tell you is not to believe a single word I say, okay? Do not believe me. I am not here to sway you to believe anything, okay? I'm setting an example of a kind of study that I want you to undertake for yourself. I'm not an oracle, okay? So I say something, you get pissed off, you know, I can't be true. Look into it, please. If I'm wrong, come to class and tell me in class so we can have a fruitful exchange. Maybe I am wrong. If you find I'm right, well, you've learned something, all right? So that was that's essentially what I said the first day. Except, and this was where everything started to go south. This is in September of last year. Yeah, September, uh, yeah. 2020. Mid-September, mid the first week, second week. I said, okay, now what I said, you know, I don't treat this as an academic subject. So I don't talk, we will not only study what Hitler did and what the Bolsheviks did and what the allies did in World War I. That's all very important background. And we're gonna talk about that first few weeks, okay? But the focus of the course and the whole purpose of the course is propaganda drives ongoing at the time like now, right, all around us, or propaganda drives that are, that are recent, right, that you remember. Mm -hmm. Because the closer it gets to the student's consciousness, uh, the more interesting and important the investigations become, right? I said, for example, look at the way we're meeting, okay? We're meeting on Zoom, why? You hate it, right? I hate it, this is no way to teach. Why aren't we in the same room, right? Well, you know the answer to that. It's because of the COVID crisis, okay? So the COVID crisis has been driven by a, a number of propaganda themes. And I said, by the way, propaganda, although we use it pejoratively, it, it, propaganda is not necessarily false. Uh, propaganda is not necessarily uh, malign. You know, it can be good. I mean, you know, public service ads encouraging you not to smoke, encouraging you to wear your seatbelt, that, that's propaganda. You, know, you have to understand propaganda to craft a drive like that so it'll affect people. The, the fact is that in most cases, propaganda is at least very one-sided. So we could look at any of the propaganda themes that have driven the COVID crisis. Uh, and parenthetically, several of them ended up writing papers on different aspects of the COVID crisis. I said, for example, I encourage you to think about the mask mandates, okay? That's a perfect example of something we could study. And I made it explicitly clear, I am not telling you not to wear masks, okay? I'm not, there's a rule, follow the rule, I follow it. This is an intellectual exercise, okay? 
So I encourage you to read, you know, on the one hand, uh, the, the body of randomized controlled studies of masks and uh, respirators in, in hospitals. And, um, you know, I thought there were eight at the time. I think there were actually 10. I said all eight of these studies conducted in hospital settings for the last, I don't know, 15 years or so have all found that masks are not effective as a barrier to transmission of respiratory viruses. That's their consensus. I encourage you to read those. They're all in reputable medical journals. I also encourage you to read the more recent studies finding otherwise, because a whole lot of them came, you know, came out over the summer, not randomized controlled studies, but observational studies, computer models, stuff like that. Uh, I said, read those two. All right, now, how do laypersons begin to assess the soundness of a scientific study? You're not scientists, I'm not one either, but we are students of propaganda. So what can you do to see if a new study is really uh, solid? Well, on the one hand, you can read scientific reviews because when new studies are posted, there are often comments. Uh, the, the UK Science Center uh, you know, posts comments uh, on, on new studies. And even more importantly, note the university that a study comes from to see if that university has any financial ties to Big Pharma or the Gates Foundation, because if that is the case, you'll want to watch for the possibility of a bias, right? So they took all this in. And uh, the next week, I think it was, maybe a little longer, I got an email from a student asking me if she could join the class late. And that often happens. I always say yes, she joined. And the second day she was there, um, the subject of, of masks came up again. I remember she had missed the first introductory discussion. It came up again. Now, I had recommended as a kind of shortcut to seven of those studies, uh, a paper by Denis Rancourt, this Canadian physicist. Now you've interviewed him before. Yes, he's terrific and he's now a friend. Um, he put together a compilation of seven of those eight studies with the title Masks Don't Work, provocative title. But you know, whatever his point of view, the links were all there in his study. And I said, you can find seven of the eight in his paper. All right, so this class now attended by this new arrival, um, in the course of it, uh, another student raised his hand or whatever you do on Zoom, you know, pushed the button or whatever and said, um, started saying all these um, nasty things about Ron Kaur and about that paper. And I quickly recognized all the points he was making. And I said, did you by any chance read the Psychology Today column on Ron Kaur's article? And he said, yes. I said, okay. And then I, I as you'll see, I, I treated this as a teaching moment. I said, when you set out to study something, the last thing you wanna do is jump to Google and do a search and um, take whatever comes up first as somehow authoritative. 
right? Because Google uh, owns two pharmaceutical companies and uh, its algorithms are completely biased. So it will, it will foreground, you know, um, material that has a certain slant to it and it will bury material that, that, that opposes that, that bias. And in this case, you, you, you did go to Google and you did find, in fact, the, you know, the column in psychology, it, it, you know, was coming up first for searches on Rancourt, who's had a long and varied career. But the first thing that came up was this attack piece on him. And it's, it's just sophistry. It's, it's really a lousy piece, but it's, you know, on its face compelling. And this student not wanting to believe that masks don't work, right? Seized on that and came to class, you know, uh, treating those points as his own. I mean, you know, innocently, right? He wasn't doing anything wrong. I said, did, you know, I asked him if he'd read the studies and he kind of hedged because he didn't. I said, you got to read the studies. All right, we had this back and forth. All right, this was a Thursday. On the following Monday, I get a call from my chair, a department chair, and he's, he's sounding indignant. And he, I believe he asked me if I had told my students not to wear masks. I said, no, I did not. I encouraged them to read these randomized controlled studies, blah, blah, blah. He said, well, um, uh, this is significant. He said, do you think you know more than the doctors at NYU, you know, which I, I, I didn't even know what to say to that. I mean, I read the studies, that's all I can say. And I understand English and, and I, I wanted the student, I, you know, I, I was kind of flummoxed by this, but it was, a, it was a telling question as I was later to learn. I said, yeah, no, I just urged them to do this reading. It wasn't even an assignment. It was just a suggestion. He said, all right, I'm gonna tell the COVID, um, you know, thought police here and, and um, whatever. I, and I believe he told me that a student was complaining about the course on Twitter. I think it was he who told me. I mean, this was like a kind of like a train wreck that I was involved in. So my memory of what happened at the beginning is a little hazy. But it, that day I learned, I think from him, that someone was complaining on Twitter. So I went and looked and indeed, this young woman who had joined the class late was on a tear against me on Twitter, you know, and instead of, you know, speaking up in that class, which obviously infuriated her um, and doing what other students have done in my courses, because, you know, I've had often had students vehemently disagree with something I was saying and the back and forth in class from that has always been fruitful for everybody. She didn't do that. She went to Twitter. By her own account, the first thing she had done uh, in reaction to what she thought I was saying was to call NYU's bias hotline, okay? And report me for some kind of bias. Uh, they rightly said to her, there's nothing we can do about this. That made her even angrier. <laughs> so she took to Twitter and demanded I be fired, okay? No ambiguity about it. And it wasn't just one tweet. It was a stream of tweets. 
And, you know, she, she, she did make some things up. Like she claimed we had a long, we'd had a long email exchange where I was browbeating her and trying to get her to agree with my view on masks. And if she didn't agree with that, she was a dupe of the media. The only emails I exchanged with her were the ones concerning her joining the class. This was crazy, but she did it and took screenshots of my website, News From Underground, which is markcrispinmiller.com, which, which features daily all kinds of important information, including many of your emails, Dr. Mercola, uh, as urgent information that had been blacked out. She was flashing all this stuff, screenshots, and, and it was, in, in her view, the things I was sharing were self-evidently false, and she said, this material all comes from far right and conspiracy websites. You know, this is you, Dell Big Trees, High Wire, Global Research, Technocracy, you know, all Nazi outlets, right? So um, I was kind of floored by this. I, it's never happened to me. I mean, I've had students disagree. It was unpleasant, but it was her first and is her First Amendment right to express herself on Twitter. So that per se was not such a big deal. However, what happened immediately after that is, is not acceptable. And that is that my chair tweeted his thanks to her and said in response to her demand for my termination, and this is a quote, we as a department have made this a priority and are discussing next steps. Okay, that took my breath away because uh, nobody talked to me, right? That conversation I'd had with him does not constitute any kind of consultation appropriate to such a radical step. They'd obviously told him, that is my colleagues, you may speak on our behalf, tell her that we're doing what we can. I couldn't believe it. Called him, I said, what, why did you say you're making my termination a priority. He said, uh, no, 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 I didn't mean that. Uh, I just wanted her to feel that she'd been heard. I said, well, there are ways to do that, but it reads as an assurance that the department is gonna make this a priority. Please take it down. And that kind of nettled him. He got a little huffy, take it down. I can't do that. It is finally down, but it's, it had, it, was up for months. Okay, I think it was recently taken down. Okay, it's gonna get much better. That happened the first day. The second day, some of my students contacted me to let me know that they had received an email from the doctor who advises NYU on its COVID rules. This must be the doctor my chair was referring to when he demanded to know if I know, think I know more than NYU's doctors, this doctor uh, you know, has advised NYU on, on COVID rules that I have to say are draconian to the point of insanity and that have resulted in a number of lawsuits by students because these are so crazily punitive. You know, This doctor and my dean emailed my other students without putting me on copy without having asked me what I said in class, intimating that I had given them dangerous misinformation, providing them with links to what their email called authoritative public health guidance, 
which is, guess what, the CDC, and ended with a stern reminder that they must wear their masks on campus or in campus buildings, okay? So they, recommend, they, they recommended studies that I also had told them to read. The difference being that I told them to make up their own minds after having read all sides of the issue, the dean and doctor told the students what to believe, right? Told them to read the studies from the, uh, noted by the CDC and to believe those, okay? I had already told the students to read them and I had also pointed out to the students and would have pointed out to the doctor who may know it, that until last April, the CDC itself was echoing the consensus of those early studies, right? And so was the World Health Organization until June of last year, echoing the consensus of those original studies. So was it authoritative then? No, is it authoritative now? These are questions that propaganda students raise, okay? And I'd already aired that issue in class. These administrators just kind of stepped in uh, behind my back, stood at my podium and, and waved an admonitory finger at the class and said, believe these, put your masks on, okay? Teaching compliance, that's not what I do. So that was outrageous. I wasn't on copy. I didn't know. Okay, this is getting worse and worse. And then I think the next day, my chair asked me for the good of the department to cancel the propaganda course for this semester. I said, what do you mean the good of the department? And he said, well, your film course is very popular. And so if you teach two sections of that, instead of just the one and the propaganda course, the numbers will be good for us. And I said, well, okay, the problem here is that both classes have the same limit, 24 students, and both are always full. In fact, I let in extra students. So I don't really see that that makes any sense at all. But since, strictly speaking, I have to do what you say, you being the chair, I will. I'll teach two sections of the film course, but I'm doing it under protest. All right. Now that, it gets even worse, <laughs> okay? I couldn't, really, I couldn't really just let this go. This was just too outrageous. I mean, I'm teaching a propaganda course and, and look what happened, right? So with the help of some friends, including Mickey Huff, who runs Project Censored, which is a terrific outfit, uh, I wrote a petition that people can find at change.org. The only ask in that petition is that NYU respect my academic freedom and set a good example for other schools. But I did it in the name of all those professors all those doctors, all scientists, all activists, all journalists, all whistleblowers who had been gagged or persecuted for their dissidence, not just over this last year when it's reached a kind of crisis point, but really for decades. It's been going on for far too long, initially sort of on the fringes, but now it's happening all over the place, everywhere to, it seems everybody who speaks up 
and demurs or dissents in any way, as I certainly don't have to tell you. So the petition went up as a kind of shot across the bow, you know? I mean, it's not just about me. Okay, that was a relief to get it out and up. Thousands started to sign it. Um, I don't know where it is now, maybe 30 something thousand people have signed it, including many eminent people in the academy and elsewhere. A month after the student attacked me on Twitter, I get this email from my dean, whom I've never even met by the way, informing me that he was ordering a review of my conduct at the request of my colleagues who in their letter attached, which they had not sent me, uh, you know, make a case that uh, I have to, you know, I have to order a review, blah, blah, blah. I read this letter, okay? I thought I'd seen everything, all right? This is what the letter says. And this is from, this is signed by 25 of my colleagues out of, I think about 32 or 33. It starts, okay, it starts by saying, we believe in academic freedom, right? That, the, the email from the dean and doctor also started saying, we believe in academic freedom. So I've learned that when somebody comes up and says, well, I believe in academic freedom, you got to kind of brace yourself, you know, because there's a big butt coming. And that's what happened with this letter from my colleagues. We believe in academic freedom, but as the faculty handbook points out, if a colleague's behavior is sufficiently heinous, uh, it can obviate his or her academic freedom. And we believe that's the case with Professor Miller. Okay, now I think what the faculty handbook is referring to is if a professor tries to rape a student or you know, uses uh, uh, lynch mob language against minority students or something like that, they put me in that category. Why? Well, first of all, they said I discouraged students from wearing masks and even intimidated those who were wearing masks, which is, you know, false to the point of insanity. It was a Zoom class. You know, I, I've never heard of a student wearing a mask on Zoom, although maybe that will be mandatory at some point. <laughs> but that, that was just the, the, the takeoff point. That was just the beginning. You know, my mask heresy was like the least of it. They went on to charge me with explicit hate speech, <laughs> launching attacks on students and others in our community, assailing my students with non-evidence-based arguments or theories, um, advocating for an unsafe learning environment, and microaggressions and aggressions, okay? I read this with increasing wonderment. I, I, if they had decided to craft a description of a professor completely antithetical to the way I teach, they couldn't have done a better job. This was, this was lunacy and slanderous lunacy at that. They're basically wanting, they're basically picking up where that student left off, okay? And as some of their exhibits uh, have proven, you know, some of them were actually in touch with that student even before 
uh, the class that so outraged her about getting a little bit ahead of myself. I read this letter. Uh, as for the review, I didn't know what to do. Uh, I contacted the provost, who's a reasonable person. I said, what am I supposed to do? She said, meet with the dean. Okay, so we had, we had a meeting like this, the dean and I. And on I'll Zoom. just, on, on Zoom. Zoom. And um, it, he was just out of it. Uh, he, 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 he's new to the position. And he didn't, he, he didn't seem, you know, I, I did my riff. I said, this false, completely false, blah, blah, blah. And he was listening, you know, without really hearing, you know, or the other way around. And um, he said, well, you know, uh, we had no choice. The university's lawyers told us we must order the review. Don't forget that point. I think it's extremely significant. Uh, I asked him how long it would take. He said, it'll be over by the end of the semester. I asked him what it would entail. He said, we'll talk to people. You know, it was just very vague. I said, well, if you're gonna talk to students, I'm going to have students write to you on my behalf and other visitors to my classes over the years. And he said, okay, you know, whatever. And that was uh, then, right? That was in October. And here it is May. And I still haven't heard anything. I don't even think there is a review to be perfectly honest, because I haven't heard from anyone who said the Dean's office contacted me. Okay. Here's why I think they haven't done anything. After I talked to the dean, I went through the letter that they wrote with a fine-tooth comb, and I crafted a point-by-point -point rebuttal cordial. <clears throat> and um, I asked for a retraction and an apology, and they ignored it. And that, I've learned, is what NYU has done at every level is just nothing. Silence. Radio silence. Right? Crickets. A week later, I sent it again. I said, please, by November 20th, I'd like you to retract this and apologize. Nothing. So I decided I had no choice. I certainly wasn't going to let this go. Uh, it was outrageous and, you know, represents inside the academy, right? Inside the academy, the kind of persecution and uh, suppression that we see going on all over the place worldwide throughout the so-called democracies, maybe most of all. So I, I decided I had to sue them for libel, okay? And that is 19 of the 25 signatories because the six um, I'm not suing uh, are junior faculty. And for all I know, they felt compelled to sign or maybe they were eager to sign, but you know, don't know me, whatever. I'm suing the 19 who, who, who know better for libel. And um, I'll just bring you up to date, take 30 seconds. Uh, they finally got a lawyer and you know, they were evading service of papers. It was very kind of squalid. They got a lawyer, they filed a motion to, dissent, uh, to, uh, to dismiss. Uh, dismiss, thank you. And uh, we responded with a brief in my affidavit, uh, and then they replied. That's the process, that's where it stops. Uh, and now over the last few months, uh, we've been waiting because at any moment the judge could rule. The judge 
could grant their motion to dismiss, in which case we will appeal, because I'm not going to quit this. He could deny their motion to dismiss, as I believe he should, over questions of fact, mm -hmm. or he could ask for oral arguments from the lawyers, which I have to admit I'd like to see. Um, there is a GoFundMe page. Uh, you just do a search on my name and libel. I'm trying to raise $100,000 because I expect this to be a protracted and costly fight with depositions. Um, the money goes directly into an escrow account that my lawyer manages, so I'm not profiting off this personally. Nor am I only doing it on my own behalf, as with the petition. Uh, they have hurt me greatly, uh, not only professionally within the institution and beyond, because word of this has, has traveled, and they've even hurt me physically because the stress of that ordeal has really um, slowed my recovery from Lyme disease, which I've been battling for 10 years. Although this is familiar to you, I'm sure. I, I was only properly diagnosed a few years ago, but I, I became so ill from this that I, I ended up in the ER John uh, NYU in January. And so I am on medical leave this semester so I never taught anything, uh, just been working on my health and telling my story so that I do prevail in the court of public opinion. Um, but it isn't just about me, my health, my career. It really is about all of us. You know, it's about you. It's about Bobby Kennedy. It's about Sukarit Bhakti. It's about Johnny Onidas. It's about the frontline doctors. It's about the signers of the great Barrington Declaration. I mean, I could go on and on and on to the point that it becomes clear that it's not only, you know, about me, but it's about what appears to be a majority of expert opinion on some level, you know, mm -hmm. uh, while the medical establishment, like the academy and like the media, uh, is, is utterly corrupt, you know, there are a lot of people of conscience, uh, doctors who observe their Hippocratic Oath professors who believe in, in trying to teach the truth, journalists out there who have no place to publish because they're actually trying to report the other side of a narrative that is increasingly preposterous and lethal, right? Uh, it's for all of us because, you know, as, as, as many have observed, you know, once free speech goes and with it academic freedom, that's the whole ball game, you know, that's the end. So if we can't even talk about uh, what's happening, if we end up being accused of conspiracy theory, you know, which is now openly equated with domestic terrorism, if we're accused of conspiracy theory, if we're accused of hate speech, right, out of the social justice playbook, and if we're accused of dangerous misinformation about the virus, which has been happening all year. If we encounter any of those three responses to our attempts to tell the truth, uh, we are shut down, right? We are vilified, we are marginalized. And my colleagues managed to hit me with all three in that letter. 
and they accused me of conspiracy theory. They accused me of hate speech and they accused me of doing the students harm by, they claim, discouraging them from wearing masks, all false. All I did was urge my class to read through all the literature on masks and make up their own minds as a kind of, uh, as an example of the kind of thing they should do with all these narratives. And which I'm pleased to say, many of them did do. Most of my students have done. And if your viewers wanna see what my students have written on my behalf or any of the documents in this lawsuit, they're all at markcrispinmiller.com. And I'll, I'll conclude by saying that I have a listserv that has several thousand people on it. Every day I send out the kind of material that outraged this young woman, really urgent material, as I say, including your stuff very often. People can join the listserv at the website uh, and get those things as emails, you know, or they can just go to the website and see what's up there. If they do join, I recommend that they pick the daily digest option so that they just get one email a day. Otherwise, they might get, you know, anywhere from four to ten. Yeah. Uh, so that's my that's my story. And I think it's an amazing one. I wish it hadn't happened. Uh, but I, I am gratified by what my students have written on my behalf. And I'm deeply moved by the outpouring of support that I've received from people all over the world, uh, people outside the academy, many of them, and also uh, you know, a startlingly high number of others who have been uh, hounded into silence uh, within the so-called ivory tower. Yeah. So you know, it's good to know that, that there are so many good people out there uh, and, and such, such a keen interest in pursuing the truth. Yeah, well, I, I Greatly thank you for sharing your egregious uh, example of what uh, academic pursuits have, have devolved to. Uh, I can only think of a few things, and one of my primary philosophies in life is, is uh, something I initially learned from uh, W. Clement Stone, which is that of being an inverse paranoid, and that you uh, take the view that everything bad that happens to you is for ultimately for some good. You just got to find out what it is, and frequently you don't see it right away. And what what really shocks me is that I, I was initially surprised that even someone like you was teaching a course like this. As I said, I would have loved to take it. But if you look at it, you're teaching two courses a year. You're hitting 50 students a year, 50. In, in 20 years, you're only hitting 1,000 people. That, yes, you're going to impact those lives, but that's over a lifetime. And your that information could be reached exponentially more people with important skill sets that every one of us needs to discern the truth, to, to, to learn the skills of how to sift through the propaganda. Because you mentioned it's propaganda on either side. No question. What you need is how to evaluate it. One of the most valuable things I learned in medical school was on the first day are the, the dean of the, the, the school sat down and or told us as we were sitting down in the first lecture that most of what we're going to learn in the next four to six years was going to be outdated by the time we graduate. And what the most important thing we can do with you is teach you how to learn, to evaluate, to, to evaluate all the new information. And uh, regretfully, I think most of us ignored that. I, I hung on to it and maintained that process because life is a continuous learning journey. But 
Um, so I think there's a real opportunity for you there and potentially even earn more, maybe not have the same prestigious academic credentials, but at least fulfill a lifetime mission of educating people about this. I mean, I know there's many uh, online learning courses or, or MOGs. Uh, I forget what exactly the, the term is, but I'm sure you're familiar with them. So that could be an opportunity where you can reach 400, 4,000, 40,000, 400,000. So they can learn this. I mean, that's a great opportunity, I can see. But so that, that's one point. And the other point is um, I'm particularly curious because you mentioned Google during this and, and how they uh, essentially censor and suppress alternative views and, and bring up all the information that supports what they want in, uh, out there. And, and it's confused because initially Google was great and they, they didn't have this bias. And, and they still continue to not have bias for many objective facts, like what's the time, what's the weather, uh, who was in this movie? And you, you know, you're going to get exactly what you need. And they're very, very good at it. There's no better search engine in the world. Unfortunately, it, it's evolved into a propaganda medium. And I'm wondering, and it seems to me that for the last two decades, nearly two decades, it, actually, you probably know that my, my site was started before Google. And uh, so and I, I followed it very closely because most all the search engines at that time when I started my site were really bad and they were the best but they devolved into the censorship propaganda machine. So what I've learned is that they're, they're capturing private information based on searches, based on the use of their uh, web browser, Chrome, based on the use of their operating system for mobile phones, which is Android, and they're compiling all this data, storing every bit of it and running very comprehensive uh, deep learning algorithms to uh, understand what motivates people at the deepest, most profound level, primarily at the limbic system. To moat, why? Because they want to know how to motivate behavior. And by motivating people, not only can they, they've been able to predict behavior for a long time based on this comprehensive data, but, no, but now not only are they predicting it, they are manipulating behavior from what, just from the very, I mean, they, it's been well documented. They manipulate elections just by, sent, by, skewing what information is shown to people uh, and, and not just the United States and countries all over the world. I mean, it's like 25% of the countries they've been, they've been uh, accused of manipulating elections. So I'm wondering if you studied this more carefully in your nearly 20 years of teaching this course uh, on the influence of the data capturing methodologies that Google has been evolving over the last two decades and, and how that has radically changed the ability to, to have effective propaganda, which you earlier defined as one that people accept and they don't have to question. Well, yeah, um, I, I guess I'll answer the first point, you know, as, as succinctly as I can. I don't mean to quibble, but I, I actually teach four courses a year. Okay. Well, but I was talking about the propaganda. No, I understand. I, I completely take your point. And, I, and many, many people have written to me asking if I could teach a propaganda course online. Mm -hmm. And I am, I am thinking about it. As long as I'm at NYU, I can't teach a propaganda course per se, because that's defined as a conflict of interest. Um, but I could teach similar courses uh, online, and I will. You know, when I'm when I'm healthier, I'm definitely going to do this because I completely agree that there is a, a, a real uh, thirst for this kind of uh, instruction, and it's it's very 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 badly needed. And there is a network of us academics, uh, international network of academics who understand the necessity of studying propaganda in real time 
uh, my friend Piers Robinson, in, in, he lives in Germany, he's a British scholar who's done uh, terrific work on the um, big lies about Assad gassing his own people in Syria. He's been much uh, assaulted in the, in the media. Uh, I expect to be attacked this week um, in the Chronicle of Higher Education, um, doing a big profile that I think is going to, you know, be an attempt. Hit piece. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, I could be wrong. But uh, the point is that, that uh, you're absolutely right. And it is, in fact, a, a, a reflection of the necessity of this kind of instruction. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That there are such vigorous efforts to, to uh, silence uh, those of us who try to do it. And we, we, we should talk about NYU's possible involvement, but I, I want to move on to your second point. Uh, you know, what is propaganda? Propaganda is an organized attempt to get large numbers of people to say, or I mean, to think or do something or, or, or not think something, you know, that's really all it is. That's an informal definition, but, but it, but it, but it's a good one. And, and it's been, it's been used for, for a very long time. I mean, the word itself was coined by the Vatican in the early 17th century. And, and when they coined it and created the office for the propagation of the faith, which is still, you know, an office in the Vatican, uh, they were thinking of propaganda as sp spreading the gospel, you know, uh, in other words, as, as spreading the truth and, and, and conceived St. Paul really as the first propagandist because he wandered the known world preaching the gospel, you know, really preaching Christianity because he's the one who systematized that religion and propagated it with enormous success. And, and his letters in the New Testament are all about his propaganda efforts. He's talking to the church community in each of the cities he visited. Um, it's been around for a long time. Napoleon was interested in it and practiced it, etc. And the allied governments in World War I were the first to use it in modern times with enormous success from which the Nazis learned. What I'm laboring to say to you here is that, that extremely clever people with enormous amounts of power, institutions with tremendous power, have always had a kind of genius for this kind of thing, a kind of genius for how to move people, to, to hit the limbic center, the lizard brain, you know, mm -hmm. The hearts and minds of people. This is not like classical rhetoric, which is about persuasion through argument, right? It's not what this is. This is a kind of um, sub-rational manipulation. Now, it's been with us for a long time, but as you say, the rise of the digital uh, world, you know, our absorption into the uh, digital universe has radically intensified this kind of effort and, and made it successful beyond the wildest dreams of Dr. Goebbels, right? Or, you know, Edward Bernays, mm -hmm. you know, who, who lived about four blocks away from where I'm talking to you now uh, because, because of this incredible um, technological sophistication that, you know, enables them, uh, first of all, to move people at, a, at the deepest level. It also enables them to suppress uh, dissidents, uh, you know, with, with uh, remarkable efficiency, you know, spotting the word vaccine in a post and then blacking it out, you know, or banning that person on Facebook or on Twitter or whatever it is. 
And at the same time, as you note, it gives them an astonishing advantage when it comes to surveillance of every single one of us. You know, you go back and you read 1984, which I always include in my propaganda course, because it is a masterpiece of um, political writing, you know, political fiction, political satire, whatever you want to call it. I think that book sheds far more light on what we are going through now than anything by Karl Marx. You know, I think Marx, uh, you know, he, he assumed it would, everything would keep on progressing. <laughs> you know, then there would be the dictatorship of the proletariat and all would be well, okay? I'm sorry, that's not how it goes. It's not how it's going. I think 1984 sheds a lot of light on how it's going. But if you compare the surveillance apparatus in that novel, you know, the telescreens basically that are in every dwelling, in every space, you know, that is, that's child's play. That's nothing compared to what they can do now where they can track every keystroke, you know, they can monitor every face. I mean, it is going to require a tremendous amount of skill and sophistication on our part to organize under that watchful eye. You know, we're in the panopticon, we're mm -hmm. visible. Uh, it's like a goldfish bowl, mm -hmm. you know? So how do, how do we organize? Uh, because organization is crucial and um, the corny expression, people power is crucial. You know, the humanity massing in protest is crucial. That is crucial. Let, let, let me note something here. At the end of 2019, uh, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, it's another one of those left groups that I was friendly with and wrote for back in the day. They published a piece that was pretty good that um, noted the media's overfocus on Hong Kong and it's um, the blind eye it had turned to a whole world of protest movements uh, that were all spontaneous, that were all organic. And the article went through a lot of them, not all of them, but all over South America, there were feminist protests. Honduras was rocked for over a year by a mass, national mass protest movement over a stolen election. There was the Bernie movement in the US. There was the yellow vests in France. There was a genuine um, sort of insurrection in Lebanon. This was happening all over the place to the point that FAIR, in its article, said the year 2019 will go down in history as the year of the protest, okay? Now, they were right to say that the media focused only on Hong Kong. They, they erred in not mentioning that the media was also over-focusing on Greta Thunberg and Extinction Rebellion, okay? Because that's, a, that's, that, those, that's an okay movement, that's permissible. It's like BLM now, right? Uh, that qualification aside, it was absolutely true that that year was a year of global protests that were organic and natural, right? Uh, look what happened. Look what happened to all this. What better way to shut that down than to come out with this bogey of a virus and ludicrous recommendations for how to deal with it, entailing um, separation of each one of us from all others by six feet, right? Implanting in the minds of everyone, and this is, speaks to your point about how deeply they can move us, 
this primordial fear of infection of the virus, right? That the, the very air that comes out of the mouths of our fellow human beings, you know, is toxic, is lethal. We have to stay away from each other. We have to skulk around with masks on, you know, and rest assured that our faces can still be recognized even with that covering, okay? What better way to, to abort uh, a nascent kind of mass movement of humanity, you know, for justice, for economic justice, for fair treatment, for democratic government, you know, for an end to femicide, the killing of women, you know, what better way to take care of all that than to, uh, you know, suddenly come out with this nightmarish virus, you know? And something very similar to this happened with World War I, because just prior to World War I, there was an enormous amount of really progressive ferment in the United States, you know, and in, and in Britain too, uh, all over the country, you know, and um, that was all nipped in the bud by World War I. So many people carried away with fear and anger, hatred of the Hun for these horrible atrocities they were committing against the innocent Belgians, every one of which was invented, made up, none of it happened, but it was so persuasive, it was so infuriating that it divided the socialist movement, you know, between those who suddenly became patriotic and those who said, don't you see, you're only fighting for the rich people here, right? So uh, the elites won with that, uh, an ingenious propaganda drive, which, which people should study now, you know, because they really were sophisticated and it changed everything. Uh, and we need such study now, now more than ever. So, you know, again, um, I'm going to keep teaching this well, good. Every, every possible way I can, whether I'm working at a university or not, yeah. uh, because that's, well, you, need you, know, to. That's yeah, my you need to join us in the 21st century. <laughs> not only uh, has some villainous aspects to it, but it has some good aspects. I mean, I really believe the in development of the in innovation of the internet is really one of the greatest inventions of mankind, even though it was done primarily by the military and is now largely being used for nefarious, nefarious purposes, but it can be used for good. And I'm glad you're open to uh, teaching this. And if you do put together a course, I'm glad to promote it on our site. I'm sure many people would love to attend. Uh, I'd be in one of them probably. So uh, just let us know. Sure. Uh, and, and in the meantime, it's your website is Mark markcrispinmiller.com? Yes, yes, okay. that's good. And they can find your, your daily newsletter, which you only want to get the daily summary, and uh, more details on your uh, litigation with New York University. Right, right. Okay. I'm, I'm, you know, to be strictly speaking, I'm not suing New York University. I'm okay. just suing the signatories of the letter. Okay, that's but right. I, I, I do think NYU is um, involved at some level. Yeah, they, well, they should be. They're, they're largely responsible for it. But it's it's not surprising what they're doing. I mean, it would would be in some other states, but New York is not. New York or California, it's exactly what you would predict. You just it, it's, you're casually of the of the uh, the new paradigm or the new narrative rather. So I'm sorry you're going through all that, but I sincerely believe that some really something really good will come out of it if you focus on that. And uh, you know, and a lot more people are going to benefit from it. So there's a little suffering, but a lot more. Uh, education and illumination in, in the end run. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for acquiring the knowledge and picking up the 
the banter of, not the banter, but the, the banner of seeking to educate people about this, that because we're all so busy, it's just hard to understand the progression of it. And once you get the details, it becomes really obvious, but it's, it's the rare, it's really uncommon to find insights into what's happening. And I'm glad you put it all together. Well, let me just say one thing to that. It it, it isn't just that we don't have the time. That is definitely true. I find that everybody's 20 times more busy since this crisis started. It's it's very strange. But it isn't only that. It's also that what's happening here um, is uh, extremely dark. Mm -hmm. And it's therefore something a lot of people don't really want to face they're in denial about denial denial. you know um i have another definition of propaganda uh which is uh something a conspiracy sorry it's a it's a definition of conspiracy theory my definition of conspiracy theory is something that if true you couldn't handle it okay yeah you you call it a conspiracy theory because you they, they wouldn't do that you think the government wouldn't kill the president like that. That wouldn't happen, you know? And that applies to all sorts of horrors that we've lived through since World War II. You know, I believe that what's happening now is the culmination of a, of a quiet history of eugenics mm-hmm. in the West mm-hmm. that starts the beginning of the 20th century from which Adolf Hitler learned a great deal. Uh, a movement that was forced underground by the Holocaust because that was a big embarrassment and that reemerged in the early 50s as a movement for population control. Mm-hmm. People don't want to understand this. They, they no. want to see Bill Gates as a benign figure, as a kind of Father Teresa, you know, bringing, bringing uh, happiness and health to the benighted nations of Africa and all that stuff. They don't want to know that his father was an intimate of the Rockefellers and sat on the board of Planned Parenthood, not because he was a feminist, but because he really did believe, as Margaret Sanger did, that abortion is one tool for getting rid of the unfit. Uh, there is eugenic discourse now being floated on the op-ed page in the New York Times, you know, where Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel writes that you know, we shouldn't expect to live past 75. And he treats it kind of half-jokingly. But if you then look at the toll that this crisis has taken on the elderly in particular, What's happened in the nursing homes in particular, you know, eerily in all five states, you know, California, New York, as you mentioned, but also Michigan, Washington and North Mm -hmm. Carolina and in Canada and in Britain and in Sweden. Mm -hmm. They housed COVID patients in nursing homes. You know, Mm -hmm. this has the look of what Dr. Vernon Coleman has called elder side. It Mm -hmm. has the look of that. Nobody wants to think that's what's going on. Right. Marshall McLuhan said, and this is a brilliant insight, you know, that the little lies don't need to be protected, but the big lies are protected by public incredulity. That is to say, come on, you're crazy. They wouldn't do that. So it's easier to call people like, like us conspiracy theorists than it is to face the likelihood or even the remote possibility that what we're saying is is true, you know? There are many conspiracy theories that over the decades have turned out to be completely true, you know? We have to make sure people know it through every means available, you yeah. know, right now. It's it's quite urgent, as, as I, I know I you- I couldn't agree. agree. That's why I wanna see you have that online course. All right. All right. 
So thank you for sharing your time with us and your story and, uh, and hopefully for much more to come and educate us in greater depth and detail because I think that would benefit so many of us. So I, I, I'm, I'm rooting for you. Thanks a million. And thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed this. I you know, appreciate the work you're doing as well. Right. Well, thank you.